listening to the sermon podcast from Real Life Moscow Campus, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. We're in week four. You guys ready to get rolling? Here we go. I'm not going to read the Christmas story again because not only have we read it multiple times over the last few weeks, it was also just read in the bump video. So that's the section we're going to be dealing with today out of Luke chapter 2. And uh, I want to begin this morning by pulling apart this whole idea of there's no room for them in the guest room. What does that mean? And uh, some of the stuff, if you've been with us for a couple of years, this will be review for you, and that's okay. Uh, it's always good to review this stuff and consider it. But I want to I make sure that we understand, because there's this picture that we have in our mind of the nativity with the shepherds and the wise men all there together and they were, other than them being two to three years removed from one another, it's a great um, idea. But, um, and the pretty stable with the nice clean hay and the wooden cross buck with the fresh straw manger and all the blankets. And like, so uh, I want to pull this apart a little bit. Give us an idea of what's happening here so that we can maybe um, understand a little bit about uh, what it means that they are bringing God in man form into this world, okay? So I want to start with a picture. Um, this is typical, uh, very standard, two-story, four-room Israeli insular home. Um, this is a place uh, upstairs. In this particular case, upstairs would be the guest room, the Kataluma. Um, but um, down below, and by the way, if you come with me to Israel, we'll go to a place that looks almost like this exactly. It's a great it's a great visual, great example. But underneath here, um, there's that little arched way there. That's kind of like the garage for their animals. It's, it's kind of an indoor stable, and um, it's where they keep their donkey and usually like a sheep and a goat. That's about it. It's not very big, but um, this is one example of where uh, Mary and Joseph may have been. Um, I'm going to tell you up front, I disagree with that, and, and I'm going to tell you why on the back end, but um, I, this, is, this is kind of a typical structure, what you might find. So I want to show you a couple of diagrams of houses that we've actually, we, uh, have actually been excavated. We, I didn't do it, but it's been done. Um, so here's one typical format. This one's up on a hill. So the storage, bedding, living room area, that's, um, that's down below, and then you have the, a cave where the stable is down below there and then up above that is where you have kind of your living space there. This is one example. Another one that we've excavated, next diagram, looks like this and uh, it's very typical. This is a very typical style of insular community that you would run into. If you look all the way on your left hand side, that purple area is the guest room. That's the Cataluma. That's the part that we're talking about when it says that they, they, uh, where there was no room for them in the guest room, which raises a really interesting question, and that is, why? Why isn't there any room in the, in the guest room? The, this, in typical insular living style, you might have 50, 60, 70, maybe more people living in this one space, and there's a there's a communal sleeping area. Like you have, everybody sleeps kind of in the same room and uh, one space in this, part, which raises a really interesting question. If you have 50, 60, 70 people sleeping in the same room, how do you have the opportunity for more kids? You with me? That's a real, that's a real issue. Well, good news. There's a room for that. 
and you go to that room when it's time for you to want to have kids. Now, um, you have to schedule it, and when you're in that room, there's no question about what you're doing in there. Everybody knows. You only go to that room for one thing, to which we go, oh, that's strangely uncomfortable. <laughs> um, here's, here's the thing about that, though. I think one of the things that we face in our culture is that we celebrate all the wrong things about sexuality. And we, we keep hidden all the things about sexuality that are actually really beautiful. I'm, we're going to do a series in next year um, called The Sex Talk. I'm going to do six weeks on Christian sexuality and kind of how, how should we be talking about it? How should we be treating it? And, um, you know, what's, what's acceptable, what isn't, all that stuff. It's going to be good. I'm excited about it. But this, this is one of those moments where we've got to reflect on, like, do, is there something that we can learn from them? It's also why when... Um, uh, two people get married, the groom builds a room onto his family's insula. And they live, the husband and wife, they sleep in that room for two years. Two whole years. They do that when they don't sleep in the communal sleeping area. For two years, they sleep just in that room. And they, they take that two years. He doesn't have to serve in the military. They take that two years so that... Um, they can figure out how to be married. He's got to figure out how to love her well. And so they take that two years and they do that. And that's part of what that happens. And after that two years is up, um, that room is repurposed and they move into their communal sleeping area. So here's the thing we have to understand about what's going on here. This is a, this is a culture that is built on hospitality. Like, the, hospitality is everything in this culture. Remember the biblical story of Lot. When, when Lot goes, um, the, the angels come to tell Lot that God's going to destroy Sodom. And Lot allows them to come under his roof and stay the night with him. And then the people of the town of Sodom come to him and say, hey, we want to have sex with your guests. Can you send them out? Well, he, here's the like in a hospitality culture, hospitality is so important, you would die before you would ever let any harm come to your guests. So what does Lot do? He sends out his daughters, to which we go, I don't even have a frame of reference for that. Like how do you, that is like absolutely not. You're welcome to stay in my home, but when it comes to my family, they're more important to me than you. Well, that's not true in a hospitality culture. It's the exact opposite. It is complete shame on your family if one of your guests gets harmed and you're still alive. If you remember um, the movie that came out a couple years ago, Lone Survivor. This is about a, a Navy SEAL unit that's in Afghanistan and they get attacked by army and there's only one guy that um, winds up living and he's wounded and it's a mess and that's and actually based on a true story that actually happened. He found his way to an Afghani village. They took him in as a guest to allow him to heal and they kept moving him to protect him from their own army. And many of the people in the village wound up dying, being shot by their army, protecting this guy so that he could stay alive because he had come under their guest. This is under their protection. This is hospitality. This is the level at which they view hospitality, which makes this even more critical for us to wrestle with. How in the world, in that kind of thinking, is there no room for Mary and Joseph in the guest room? The, 
she's about ready to give birth, which leads me to a, a point about them being in the, in the garage part of the insula. Remember that little kind of indoor stable space? Um, the, this is something for us to consider. Like, even if that's the space that they're in, how, maybe you cleaned it. Great, you cleaned all the, you know, the thing about donkeys and sheeps and goats, they poo. So maybe you cleaned it, right? Great. How long does it take for him to mess it up again? First of all. And secondly, even if it was clean, you don't put the woman who's about ready to give birth in that room. You put the little nine-year-old yahoos in there. That's who you put in there. They don't care where they sleep. They love rolling around in donkey poop. Like, that's, they think that's awesome. Like, this is so cool. Did you see? Just, oh, you know, that. That's, that's who you put there because they don't care, right? You don't put the woman who's about ready to give birth in that room. And yet there's still no room for them in the guest room. Let me, let me show you a picture of where I believe, like where they, where they would have been historically. Let's look at a picture. This is a shepherd's cave, and this cave is actually at a place called Kokov HaShahar. If you, it's a lot, it's a mouthful. Um, if you come with me to Israel, we'll go here to this cave. You will stand in this cave. So uh, it's really cool, and it's a great illustration. This is not the cave where Jesus was born. Don't worry, it's not even in the right part of Israel, but it's a great illustration of what it would have been like. So let me show you the second photo. Uh, if you noticed, here's the, here's the floor of the cave, and the ceiling of the cave is dark. It's black. That is not the color of the rock. That is soot from campfires. That's what that is. There's a thousand, thousand shepherd's fires that have been building in this cave. This, remind, this makes me think of like uh, the Disney movie Tarzan, the, the cartoon one with the elephant Tantor when he dips his water. And like, is this water sanitary? Is this cave, like, is this sanitary? The answer is no, it's not sanitary. Next, next photo. This is the ground um, uh, of the cave. That is not dirt. It's sheep guano. Is that, are you allowed to say that? It's sheep droppings. It's, and it's thick in the floor of that cave. Like, you could dig down a foot and a half, and all you would have is all of this crushed, trampled animal feces. That's the floor. It's not the happy straw, little clean, pretty, oh, let's look at the next photo. There's a, this is in the same cave. If you'll notice, all the way on the uh, right-hand corner, there's a little flat area back there. With the, it actually goes back and there's a depression in there. That's the manger. I defy you today to find enough wood in Israel to build a wooden crossbuck manger. They don't exist. That's, that is um, Alexander the Great's influence on the Christmas story, straight up. That is not historically accurate. There's no shortage of stones there, though. They've been picking rocks out of their fields for 4,000 years. They're still picking lots of, there's a lot of rocks, a lot of rocks. This is the world into which Jesus comes. Welcome, baby Jesus. Aren't you so glad you came? We made a special place for you. I want you to see this because the question that I wrestle with every Christmas season is, 
why are Mary and Joseph willing to endure this? What is it about them that allows them to go, you know what, we're going to be okay with this? And maybe they weren't, but they endured it anyway. I don't know. I don't know what they were thinking. But I do have a theory that maybe their love for God was more important to them than being right. And because of that, they're able to be literally family shunned. They're shunned by their family. Why? Because their pregnancy is illegitimate. Like, yes, it's from the Holy Spirit. We believe that. But I have a 22-year-old daughter. Let's say she came to me and said, Dad, I'm pregnant, but don't worry. It was the Holy Spirit. Sure. Why don't you send the Holy Spirit over here? I'm going to rough him up for a minute. Right? Like, you, you know this. You know this is true. Like, they're not more naive than we are. Her, pregnant, her pregnancy is illegitimate. And this brings huge dishonor on Joseph's family, which is built in an honor-shame culture. So when he's shamed the family, there's no place for him in his own family's home anymore. And they didn't even do anything wrong. Which, by the way, just shout out to Brad Gray. Um, if you watch his teaching series on walkingthetext.com, this last week, this last Tuesday, he did a great um, thing on Jesus being the son of Joseph and what that means. Like Joseph's integrity in this process that is often overlooked because, you know, well, Joseph's not, he's not really his dad. So we can, no, Joseph's amount of integrity and what he was even, even before the angel came to him, how he was trying to protect Mary was just like, of course God would use a guy like that. Of course he would. You can jump on, on walkingthetext.com and watch that this, if you want to from this last Tuesday. But um, it's amazing to me that they're willing to endure all of this. Now, what I want to do is I want to step out of the Christmas story and step into our temple metaphor, and then we're going to come back around and tie, tie the two together. So uh, in our temple metaphor, let's up the diagram. We've been working through how God has set up this idea of how we approach his presence. For us, too many times, we don't even consider the need for preparation in coming into the presence of God. We just run into his presence and expect him to do great things. And he's like, look, I'm here and it's awesome, but you're not ready to receive what I have to give you. So there's this process by which we prepare ourselves. We talked about the front steps, which is the teaching steps. This is where our rabbis would have taught. And the idea here is that prophecy teaches us that God's promises are secure, and because of that, we can have hope. Regardless of what our circumstances look like right now, because of God's truth, his, his faithfulness, his all-powerfulness, we know that his promises are secure. We need to know that. But then we need to prepare ourselves to receive it. And so we step to the altar. At the altar is a place of confession. At confession, when we confess our sins to God, we find a God who says, I'm so glad you're here. He doesn't want to beat you up. There we find peace. At the porch, which is the next step, we have a place of repentance where we recommit to walking the path that God has lined out for us. Today, what we're going to talk about is the holy place. One of the things that we've been pointing out is that fewer and fewer people get to, as the closer we get to the presence of God, the fewer and fewer people that have access to it. In the holy place, this is where only the priests are allowed to go. Um, only the priests are allowed to go there. And in the holy place, they consecrate themselves for the work of the priesthood. 
They set themselves apart. They set themselves aside as holy. We are distinct. We are different than the world. And in the holy place, we commit ourselves and recommit ourselves to that calling, which raises a question for you and I. How do you and I, how do we set ourselves apart? What is it that, uh, because listen, Bible calls you, like you're a royal priesthood, holy nation. You call yourself a follower of Jesus, you're a priest, period, end of story. Like you don't get, well, that's for the super holy people. No, it's for anyone who says they believe in Jesus. How do we do it? How do we show the world that we, we have our priests of the most high God? How do we do that? Well, I want to show you some passages today that ties right into our theme for the week. Okay? Let's look at uh, the 133rd Psalm. It's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Here's what it says. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It's like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard. That's why this is my favorite I'm in the Bible. No, it's not me. I don't know if you knew it, but I wasn't alive then. Um, it's not me. Down on the collar of his robe, it's as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For, the, for there, the Lord bestows his blessing, even life evermore. Now, wrestle with this question. Where does God bestow his blessing? I know this is church, but I asked you a question. Where does God bestow his blessing? Go back to the first slide. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is there. Where? Where God's people live together in unity. It is there that God bestows his blessing. If you want God's blessing in your life, you got to get rid of grudges and bitterness. Like the foundational way that we show the world who our God is, is how we treat one another. And what he says is that it's like the oil that was poured over Aaron's head that ran down on his beard. Like, here's a funny side note. Um, this is bonus content. When they anointed somebody with oil, like they took a big jug of oil and anointed with glue, 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 right, running down. Like it's this picture, right? When we do it in today's church, they're like, we want to be anointed with oil. What they do is put a little on their thumb and put a cross on your forehead. I don't know what that does. I don't, that's all we do. For them, anointing was like, anoint with oil, right? Boom, and it's running down his hair, down in his beard, down onto the collars of his robe. This is this moment that Aaron gets set aside for the Aaronic priesthood. What the psalmist is saying is that this, when we can get along with one another, it's like we've been set apart. How do we show the world that we're set apart? How do we consecrate ourselves? It's all about how you and I treat one another. Like you can't say that you love God and don't love your brother. In fact, 1 John says if you try to do that, then you're a liar. And the truth isn't in you. Just the reality of it. I want you to look at John 13. This is a big deal. 
A new command I give you, that should be important to pay attention to. If God with us is going to give us a command, we should probably pay attention to it. Here's his command. Love one another. How? As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this will all, all men know that you are my disciples because of your solid theology and your amazing doctrine. Now listen, don't get me wrong. The answer to bad theology isn't no theology. The answer to bad theology is good theology. The answer to bad doctrine isn't no doctrine. It's good doctrine. But that's not how the world's going to know who our God is. What Jesus says is how the world's going to know who our God is is about how we love one another. It's not about our truth. It's not about our convincing apologetic arguments. It's not about the fact that I'm smarter than you and I can outreason you and let's have a big public debate. And do, 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 do. Let's do that because that'll bring the world to Jesus. No, it won't. What shows the world who Jesus is is how we love one another. And that matters more than anything else. That's what Jesus said. Maybe there's a lesson to be learned from Mary and Joseph in loving God more than we want to be right. Maybe there's a lesson in being willing to be put out in order to put our God on display well. Like, when was the last time that we, and I'm just asking questions, I'm not accusing anybody, but when was the last time we were willing to take a back seat in the world so that God could look good? Not a back seat to God, because of course, if we knew we were doing that, yes, we would do it, but a back seat to other people because it put our God on display well. How in the world? Here in just a minute, we're going to sing the song, Oh, come, let us adore him, right? You can't sing that song about adoring Jesus in a cave if you're not willing first to consecrate yourself. And the way that we consecrate ourselves is how we love one another again and again and again. The Bible tells us that. That is how we show that we're set apart. And it says crazy things, like love your enemies. Not just the people who are nice to you. Love your enemies. Oh, man. They're meaners, right? Yep. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. That's different. That's a different caliber. We're going to skip Romans 12. It's in your notes. Uh, I want you to read it. It kind of puts some boundaries on what love looks like. But here's my thought. We're going to move towards the Lord's table. I want us to really begin to wrestle with in this Christmas season, how well have we done at just simply being who God's asked us to be? Like, we don't have to have some magic truth, knowledge, whatever. I think, honestly, like, if we're willing to really try to love people well, 
That's hard work enough, don't you think? Like, yes, all that other stuff and the knowledge, it's all critical. I'm all about studying and learning and growing and understanding and all that stuff. But if in the midst of that, we don't figure out how to better and better and better love people, then all of that study means nothing. It means nothing. And so for us, we take communion every week as a reminder. If you're new with us, we have an open table. What that means is anybody who's willing to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus with us is invited to take communion with us. But we want you to hold the elements till the end, and we'll take them all together. Now, while they're passing that out, um, we're going to do, I want to share something that we're doing that's a little bit different in the coming year, different than we have been doing. Typically at this point, what we'll do is we'll work through three or four implications for the sermon. And... um, that's usually kind of the key points that we want to take away. One of the things that we're doing with our home groups this year is we're going to start kind of a lecture lab um, style with the sermon and the home group. And if you're not in a home group, especially this year, you're really going to need to get in one because this is where we're really going to start intentionally applying a lot of the stuff that we talk about on Sunday morning. Instead of doing implications what we're going to do is to leave you with three, four, five group questions that you'll actually go back into your group and discuss during the week. So this will be an opportunity for you to go, I'm going to write down my answers even, um, and then I'm going to take it to my group ready to have a discussion around those those things. So if you're meeting this week, um, I think you're crazy to meet with your group on Christmas week, but some of our groups love each other like that. They love, love each other like crazy cakes. Um, so, so if you are, if you're meeting, um, that's great. Uh, here's some questions for you to be talking about while you're having your group this week. Question number one, in your life right now, who wouldn't have a place in your guest room? Who do you have? And before you just go, ah, no, everybody. Let's, let's, we don't have to push that envelope very far before it falls apart because we all have those people whoever those people are for you we all have them who who wouldn't be welcome in your guest room question number two at this stage in your life where could you be more set apart and by simply, by set apart, what we mean is, where could you love people better? Like more intentionally love people better. For some of us, it's about loving our spouse better. Um, for some of us, it's about loving our kids. For some of us, it's about loving our extended family. For some of us, there's this stinking coworker that is a lousy so-and-so. All right? And God is saying to you, love that person well. Treat them the way Jesus would want to be represented. At this stage in your life, where could you be more set apart? Third question. Whom in your life do you need to love better? And how are you going to do that? It is not enough to just acknowledge who you need to love better. Because you can talk around that all day long, but if you don't put together an intentional strategy to do something with it, doesn't mean anything. 
I think it's time for the church to be done talking and start actually walking out what we say we believe. Like we can dance with that all day long, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how much you say you love somebody if you don't actually make an effort to love them. When I was in um, youth ministry, this was a long time ago, I did a tour of duty in uh, youth ministry. And uh, the kids are, most of them are out of therapy. A couple of them left, most of them are. It was early, early, early on, and I, I don't know if you know this, but like compared to who I used to be, I'm very like reserved and gentle and don't really give my opinion very much uh, compared to who I used to be. It's kind of like Anne of Green Gables, right? If you knew what I kept inside, you'd think I said nothing at all. Um, when I was young, I didn't have that filter. And so I would be like, you don't love God. And I would call everybody out. It was like I was going to change the world through harsh preaching. Um, it's weird. It didn't work. <laughs> and, so, uh, and so I was like, what? Me hating on you doesn't change your mind? Um, it's weird. So uh, kids started leaving the youth group. And I was like, why, don't you, why are you leaving the youth group? I love you guys. And they're like, you don't love us. And I was like, what do you mean I don't love you? I told you where you were wrong. <laughs> it's kind of like a spouse that's like, I'm, I love you because I'm pointing out all the places where you're wrong. So you could be better. See how I love you? Here's what I learned. It doesn't matter how much you say you love somebody. If they don't know that you love them, it doesn't matter. Maybe part of our Christmas season this year is about acknowledging the fact that we're actually intentionally trying to do something about loving other people well. What does that look like? Uh, it, it begins, and it's one of the reasons why I love taking communion every week. It begins with the same principle that communion represents time after time after time. We have to, like Jesus, commit to laying our life and our agenda down so that God could use it for what he wants to do. This reminds us that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is given for you. So whenever you eat this bread, do in remembrance of me. In the same way after the dinner, he took a cup and he said, this cup, it's a new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. So whenever you drink this cup, do in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for, um, thank you for this amazing privilege and sacred responsibility of putting you on display well. This call to love, even the people in our life that we find a hard time loving, um, that you would count us worthy of such a sacred and amazing task. God, thank you for trusting us with that. Lord, strengthen our resolve and give us the courage to live in that truth well. In your name, amen. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life on the Palouse. You can find out more about us by visiting us online at liferotp.com and connecting with us on Facebook and Instagram. Also, if you enjoyed this message, make sure you check out the new podcast from our lead pastor, Aaron Couch, called A Better Conversation. Search for it on our website, iTunes, and the Google Play Store.